One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, if you are new here, welcome. I do not see any new faces, but if you are new, definitely biggest of welcomes. This is the Slate Podcast for Super Wild Card Weekend. I am Hilo, he is Zandemir, he will join me here shortly. But this is the space where we dive into the nitty gritty, the down low, the in-depth theoretical stuff behind each main slate each and every week here at OWS. For those that know what's up, you know what's going on. Let's bring him in, the man, the myth, the human computer himself, Mr. Zandemir. How we doing, brother? I am doing <clears throat> quite well. Uh, one of our prop bets just got tagged by injury news, which is not ideal, um, but other, which I just found out. Um, but other than that, other than that, doing great. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, excited for wildcard weekend. It's funny, like coming to the end of uh, of what's it called of um, football season is always a bit bittersweet for me. I'm, I'm sure it is for you too, because like it's exciting. You know, on one hand, you sort of breathe a sigh of relief because like we work really hard during football season, right? Like uh, most of the, I think all of the OWS contributors except JM, you know, we all have other jobs right and so football season is super busy but on the other hand it's like i love this stuff and it's always a bit sad uh coming to the end and being like well now i'm just gonna hang out for you know a few months until next week what am i gonna what am i gonna do with my spare time i guess i'll play go uh for those of you who missed yeah. the conversation earlier it's time to dive deep into the like this is the the point of the year where i start transitioning more and more into nba i start picking up mlb um, getting back, you know, rust, knocking the rust off of MLB because um, MLB is kind of like my best DFS sport. NBA is most profitable for like betting. Um, but yeah, like now's the time of year where it's like, yeah, exactly. Like, what do I fill this void with? <laughs> it's like it's NBA and, and gearing up for MLB for me. But yeah, um, super bittersweet. Um, yeah, we, we love we love to be here, obviously. Um, with that, dude, this is like definitely a super wild card weekend and, and DraftKings is making it a little bit more super for us. Honestly, um, the big money GPPs are split up between the days. So there's a two game Saturday slate. There's a three game Sunday slate. And then the big millionaire maker showdown on Monday. They also tickled our fancy a little bit with providing some big showdowns for all six games, as well as a full slate. So this is like, Almost like like at least a three in one the slate podcast, maybe like a nine in one slate podcast, because uh, we're gonna talk about pretty much the theoretical components, the DFS theory, um, the game theory behind pretty much all of those slates here. Um, I think we're gonna have enough time, so we're gonna get right to it, man. And we're gonna start with the Saturday slate. From there, we're gonna go to the Sunday slate, then we'll talk about the entire slate, and we'll tie. Uh, a nice fancy bow on it with talking about some showdown stuff as well, uh, if we have time at the end. But with that, dude, let's talk about the Saturday slate. Saturday slate, big picture. We have the Seahawks visiting the 49ers at Candlestick. There's been some rumblings about the weather. We'll talk about that here shortly with that game, with obviously that 
um, cyclone whatever the hell storm that's off the coast, uh, off the Pacific Ocean, off the coast of California, just drenching California right now. Um, and then, are, actually, are you getting rain from that as well? Uh, we're getting a little. Um, I grew up in Santa Barbara, though, in Southern California. My parents live there still. Uh, we know they're they're fine, fortunately, but we know some people who had to who had to evacuate um, for at least a few days. As far as I know, everyone seems okay. Um, but no, it's not hitting us super hard here. Was that like flooding and mudslides and shit? Um, I don't know, honestly. I think like some flooding, yeah. Santa Barbara tends to get a lot of mudslides because it's like this town kind of on the beach, but behind it, there's all these mountains. Um, yeah, yeah. And so like it does tend to get a lot of mudslides, especially there hasn't been a big wildfire there in a couple years, which is good because that tends to be like when there's a wildfire um there's then uh you know it, it loosens up the soil there's no trees to hold the soil in and then like if a big rainstorm comes after the wildfire uh, it tends to get like a very like a lot of you know mudslides and there was a, a big one a couple years a few years ago there's not a couple anymore is i don't know five or six years ago maybe that like took out a good chunk of the town jesus yeah that's crazy uh t's and p's folks in so in socal but anyway yeah candlestick We'll talk about the weather here shortly. Um, it's looking like we've seen, or at least I've seen a lot of rumblings about the expected weather. Um, last I saw was they're expecting a half an inch to an inch of rainfall during the game. If you look at most of that, it's mostly coming before the game time with uh, the most recent updated expectation forecast being like a tenth of an inch during throughout the three hours of the game. That said, that could affect the field conditions. We'll talk about that here shortly as well. Um, but yeah, we have the Seahawks visiting the 49ers at Candle... Well, it's not Candlestick anymore. What the hell is the stadium? I don't even remember. It's not, um, it's not Oracle. Formerly known as... Not Oracle. What the fuck is it called? Yeah, I don't even remember, dude. I can't keep track of all the corporate sponsorships. I know. God damn it. Um, yeah, that uh, game oh, at Levi's Stadium. Levi's, that's right. right. Okay, cool, 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 cool. All right, we're sane. We're with it. Um... That game has a game total of 42.0 with a massive 10-point spread. That has been bet up. Um, when the lines opened, it actually opened at 10, was bet down to 9.5, and, and it's back up to 10. With the game total opening at 43.5 and, and now down all the way to 42. So that's some pretty significant movement. We'll keep track of that as well throughout the night. We also have the Chargers um, at the Jaguars. This one, uh, the game total has gone up a half a point, and the spread has moved in favor of the Chargers, opening at one and a half up to two and a half. So we're adding some points, or at least Vegas is adding some points to the Chargers Vegas implied team total there. We'll talk about that here shortly as well. What are you seeing macro from this two-game Saturday slate, X? Yeah, so... The ownership is going to be very concentrated in the later game because it's a higher total and it's a closer spread. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cheaper players from that game, right? Like you've got Chargers value options now with Mike Williams ruled out. Cough, Brandon Staley is a fucking idiot. Cough. Um, and you've got uh, the Jags. The Jags pass catchers are just pretty cheap, right? Like they're they're just they. And I know that DraftKings especially, like, they clearly, they try on playoff slates because they're trying to attract more casual players. So they, they tend to make pricing a little softer because they want to, you know, for casual players, it's more fun to 
put in a roster of players where you know all their names as opposed to trying to be like, I'm putting, who's this Jamal Agnew guy? I guess I have to play him. Um, so they make pricing soft, which is interesting. And so the Jags guys are pretty cheap. So I think we're going to see a lot of ownership on that game. Um, we have the dynamic of there being a wide separation of kickoff time. So we will know the outcome of Seattle, San Francisco before we get to Chargers Jags. Uh, and we'll talk about how to think about that from a strategic angle um, and as we continue on. Um, and I will also just say, Candle, like, I, it's weird to me that the Chargers are being bet up uh, when they are missing one of their best receivers uh, and when the Jags are at home and when the Jags absolutely curb stomped them earlier in the the one time they met this year, uh, it that feels a little odd to me. And I'm not generally a line better, um, but I actually put a bet on the Jags money line to win. I think they are the better team on the whole. They're certainly the better coach team, uh, given you know what we've seen from the Chargers of late. So I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic where it feels like people are largely expecting the Chargers to win. Um, and, you know, I'm not, and, and rosters we built based around that and ownership is to some extent flowing from that assumption. Um, I'm not sure they do and, and they could, right? It's, it's a close spread game either way. So I think it's more of a coin flip than chargers favored, but, um, but I think that we're seeing people like the field, like from ownership, you can see the field is largely assuming that, uh, that the chargers are likely to win the game. I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah, there's also ownership some interesting dynamics from. Sorry, say again. I'm saying our ownership isn't updated on labs. I don't see. I don't know why. It's been a while since I passed it. I, I did an ownership update a bit ago with the Mike Williams news, and it doesn't seem yeah. to have passed through to labs yet. Yeah, so let's talk about that real quick, how that's going to affect the slate. So, value is going to be an issue. What that is likely to do is make it so, well, at least up until this Mike Williams news, but we'll talk about the fallout of that here shortly. From a macro perspective, what I'm seeing from this Saturday slate is there is very little in the way of perceived value. Typically what we see when we see a slate like that is we see a little bit more balanced builds as the quote-unquote chalk build for the weekend or for the slate or for whatever the case may be. On this case, you know, just a two-game slate. What does that mean? It means that double pay-up running backs, so like CMC, Eckler, uh, are likely to go under-owned. You're likely liable to see a lot more CMC ETN or Eckler ETN rosters in play. So there's a little bit of leverage inherently in that double pay-up running back um, as kind of your core on the build. That's going to change a little bit, although with Mike Williams being ruled out, I think most of the fallout from that is going to land on Keenan Allen, who is one of the more priced up wide receivers on the slate, and Joshua Palmer, who is in that middle tier of player pricing and kind of fits this mold of like the, you know, the chalk build being a more balanced roster construction. I think based on my read on the slate on human psychology on public perception of what's going on i think deandre carter is going to go largely or i guess i should say relatively overlooked um with the fallout from this mike williams that said this is still an offense that is playing primarily from 11 personnel and 12 personnel so two tight ends on the field that should open up 75 to 80% of the offensive snaps for DeAndre Carter here. And he's priced down at what? 3.6, something like that. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, he's an interesting piece to think about utilizing for these double pay-up running back builds this weekend as probably one of the more um, projectable value pieces on the slate. The other thing worth note that I've noticed out of ownership projections versus what we're seeing from um, just projections, raw projections across the industry, Donald Parham is, is very interesting from the slate um, as a potential value piece. Be- one, he has outsnapped, um, or I guess he's led the team in tight end snaps each of the last two weeks. And as we just got done shitting on Staley for hashtag fake sharp, <laughs> they played their starters the entirety of week 17 and week 18. So that's interesting. Uh, or noteworthy, I should say, if at least nothing else. Um, Donald Parham, particularly because it's a two-game slate, I wrote about this a little bit in a piece I did for NBC this week. I tried to rehash a little bit of it in the end around, which is centered, focused on the Saturday-only slate because I was able to layer a little bit more game theory thoughts into my Sunday write-up. But something that... I think we're going to... Oh my god, I lost my train of thought where I was going with that. Hold on, I'll get it back. Donald Parham? Yeah, I don't know what the hell <laughs> I was trying to think with Donald Parham, dude. Uh, anyway, it'll come back to me. He's awesome. Um, he got snapped right at Gerald Everett? Yeah, 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 sure did. He's a beast of a man? Oh, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. That's, All right, so, that's the thing that prompted it, okay. <laughs> yeah, right? The tight ends on the slate. It is a primary decision point in a two-game slate. Okay, sorry. So going back to the, this thought about it being a two-game slate, we're likely to see very specific roster ownership funnels. And what I mean by that is how it pertains to roster construction as a whole. We, we're talking like chalk builds, how we see these different player pricings fit together through the constraints of a salary cap contest. We're all playing by the same rules, right? But if we dig a layer deeper than that, we can start to identify these spots where we can start piecing together how these you know, higher-owned pieces are fitting together and how rosters come together behind it. And we call that the chalk build, or I term that the chalk build. With that, the tight end position is one of our roster funnels for this Saturday slate. We have George Kittle in the nuts matchup against Seattle defense, who is top three in uh, fantasy points allowed per game to wide receivers, but they bleed production to tight ends and they bleed production to running backs. So what is that likely to do? We also have Evan Ingram, who is one of the perceived value pieces. And we were talking earlier about the value pieces on this slate. Most of them are coming from the Jaguars. We have Christian Kirk, who is that middle tier player pricing is expected to garner immense ownership. We have Zay Jones, who is a down price down at 4.3 on the slate, who is expected to garner some heavy ownership. We have Evan Ingram from the same team. Priced at only 4.2, expected to garner some heavy, heavy ownership. When we start seeing those different roster funnels, we can almost like with, with a very, very high degree of certainty assume that at least one of those guys is going to be present on a vast majority of the rosters in play this weekend. Well, what does that mean or how do we build leverage off of that knowing going in that the field is kind of identifying that spot as the value spots. Well, you don't have to just say like, well, I'm going to play 
DeAndre Carter at 3.6 and not play any Jag because it's a two-game slate. We're likely to need like at least one player from each team type thing as we strive closer and closer to optimal. And that is the big thing that I wanted to highlight from this is that idea of optimal and what it takes or what it what the size of the slate means respective to optimal or how close, put another way, how close do we have to be to optimal dependent on the slate size? Let's take the extremes. Let's, let's take week 18 where every team is playing. We have um, no game on Monday. So we have like all 32 teams in play on the main slate. Or we, at least we've seen that in the past. That's one extreme where it's like every team is playing. They're all on one slate. The other extreme of that is showdowns. Which of those slates like, do we have to be closer to optimal or have the optimal roster in order to ship? Well, it's very clearly showdowns. That is accepted, or we can place that in the common knowledge bucket of like, we know this information, we know that everybody else knows this information, and we know that everybody else knows that everybody else knows this information. So once we start thinking through that process is where we start to build these ideas of like, I call it level two, level three game theory, where we're thinking about what that means and how we can build rosters off of that. So on a two game slate, if we know we need close to optimal, we know we're probably going to need a Jacksonville player. It's the highest game total game. They have a high Vegas implied team total. We say high with quotations, relatively high versus the other game on the slate. But that said, when we start finding these roster funnels, we can develop a game plan of how we want to approach that from an optimal stance to maximize our expected value, our EV, over time. And the Jaguars, the tight end position as a whole is one of those roster funnels, or two of those, I should say, roster funnels. So if we break down... And we just look at the Jacksonville Jaguars and we look at what the top on paper play is, what the metrics, what the numbers are telling us. The top on paper play from the Jacksonville Jaguars is actually um, Christian Kirk. Why is that? We can expect Jacksonville to play primarily from zone coverage on defense. We can expect them to have relatively low blitz rates. And basically Christian Kirk is this team's zone beater sorry we can expect the chargers sorry i'm getting all fucked up now the chargers yes that is true for jacksonville we're talking about the chargers now dude sorry the chargers have elevated early down blitz rates they actually lead the league in first and second down blitzes over the last six weeks what does that mean on the second and third level of their defense on the back end that means they're playing elevated rates of man coverage on the back end Christian Kirk is the team's man beater. So discard what I just said before that. This is the real shit. <laughs> Christian Kirk is this team's man beater. The worst player, or we say the PFF's lowest graded player of the big three. We think about um, this team is really the, the primary three pass catchers with uh, Travis Etienne seeing a somewhat limited pass game role. So it's just Christian Kirk. It's uh, Evan Ingram at tight end, and it's Say Jones, are like the big three pass catchers. PFF's worst graded member of those three against man coverage this season is by far Evan Ingram. And he's the one expected to garner the most ownership, 
Now, folding it back, why is that? Because of the state of the slate and really the limited options at the tight end position. So all that like deeper level thought and like thinking about what this means for building a roster this week leads us to like, hey, a very simple, easy way to gain leverage is to simply go elsewhere from Evan Ingram at the tight end position. And there's there's many more layers to that. We can say like, well, yeah, you can play... Um, you can play Trevor Lawrence with Evan Ingram and Travis Etienne because that's going to be lower owned. However, that's a little bit departure from optimal if we're looking about like just straight in a vacuum on paper play. All of that said, Christian Kirk is expected to garner ownership, but he's slightly lower than the expected ownership of Zay Jones because of his price at 4.3. And he's slightly lower than the expected ownership of Evan Ingram because of the position, uh, positional scarcity at tight end. With all that, that leads us on paper, theoretically, from the tight end position on the Saturday slate being George Kittle and then everybody else. And George Kittle is in the bucket of players that can put the slate out of reach. He's scored seven touchdowns in his last four games. He has three multi-touchdown games, all that yada yada. We know how badass George Kittle is in the nuts matchup for a tight end. So he is in the bucket of this guy can put the slate out of reach. In the other bucket is like everybody else. And what do we need if we're playing a tight end from bucket B or everyone else? We need them to basically put up a solid point per dollar score and we need George Kittle to not put the slate out of reach. So herein lies our roster funnel. And how that, that was a long backstory of like how we arrived at that position for this slate. That was a lot, dude. I'm tired of talking. I am so tired. Backstory, my wife is 39 weeks pregnant. We thought she was going to labor, so I stayed up until midnight. I slept until 2. I got up at 2 to write all my OWS sheets, so I've been up for a solid 14 hours, and I'm exhausted right now. But uh, So apologies for getting that shit mixed up a little bit. But all that said, dude, what do you think about that discussion about the tight end position um, in particular, and how are you seeing a way to leverage that on the slate? Yeah, it's sort of weird on a two-game slate when the guy who clearly has the highest ceiling at a position is not the highest owned, right? Like that's sort of an, that's an that's kind of an outlier outcome, right? Um, you generally expect that. Well, the field is not like the field struggles sometimes with like roster construction. The field is generally good at identifying like who is a good in a vacuum play, uh, and and putting those good plays on rosters, right? Um, and it's the, people are sort of failing to do that here. I'm currently trying to build a roster that has CMC, Eckler, Etienne, Kittle, and Kirk, and it's hard. Um, it's doable, but hard. It's not impossible, yeah. yeah it's not impossible, <laughs> which is very exciting. Um, but uh, I agree that. So like, I think that people tend to look at... People are nervous about Kittle's volume in a game in which the 49ers are massive favorites. And we know that the 49ers will pull back on passing volume uh, when they are way up. And so they're looking at Engram as a safer source of volume with a, you know, not quite as good projection, probably. I don't know what point projections say for these guys right now. Um, actually, Kittle's got a solid point and a half on him. Um, 
But it looks, you know, people are looking at, like, is that where I want to spend at Kittle when he might only get four targets or something like that? Um, and, and I mean, Zay Jones is such an obvious point of value. Engram is such an obvious point of value compared to all the other tight ends except Kittle. And he clearly has a higher ceiling than guys like Gerald Everett and Noah Fant. Um, but Kittle has the highest ceiling on the slate of any tight end, right? But people are nervous about the match, the the volume. Um, but I think they're not digging in that sort of layer deeper. And it's funny, I actually just finished writing um, a piece, uh, just a piece for kick for shits and giggles, really, about how projections work, um, and and talked a lot about how what projections are not good at is dealing with matchup stuff. Right. Like projections can say, well, based on this team has a good matchup and they're projected to score more points. But what they can't do is say, you know, they can't project for how a team is likely to attack their opponent and saying things like, oh, Seattle actually has clamped down on wide receiver production, but has been very vulnerable to tight ends. Like projections can't really account for that very effectively because they're projecting mean outcomes. Um, they can't project coaching decisions. They can't project quarterback decisions of where they're going to throw the ball. Um, and so when you're just looking at projections, like Kittle projects fine, but Engram projects better on a point per dollar basis. Um, because when you just look at like market share of targets, uh, you know, like look at, you look at overall team total, which affects touchdown equity, um, and how many touchdowns are attributed to a player in projections, like Kittle's not going to project super great. Um, because the offense, his offense is more spread out. It projects for lower passing volume. Um, but what it, but what projections can't capture is that the 49ers are likely to score at least three touchdowns here. And what happens if Kittle gets two of them, right? Like that's what projections can't capture effectively. And yeah, I mean, like Kirk's going to be owned, obviously. I mean, just about everyone's going to be owned. It's a two game slate, right? But I would say that Kirk is... I don't know. Keenan Allen's probably the best receiver on the slate now, I think, um, in terms of just like, in terms of just median projection, like what he's likeliest to do. I think Keenan Allen probably is the strongest receiver play on the slate, but Kirk's probably the second strongest. And, you know, he's the second strongest play, but he's not one of the highest. He's, he's up there, but he's kind of in the second tier of ownership, right? Like on a two game slate, the preferred plays get into the 50s of ownership. And that's like, Zay Jones, because he's so cheap, it's Keenan Allen, it's the three, like, clearly best running back plays, uh, Engram is close to it, but, Kit, you know, Kirk is, like, a tier below, and that's we that seems like a mistake to me. Um, with you about DeAndre Carter being a little overlooked, and I think that's entirely possible, it's more so, like, I think it's going to happen on both sites, because on FanDuel... DeAndre Carter is is cheap, but the pricing gap between DeAndre Carter and guys like Josh Palmer and Brandon Ayuk uh, and Debo Samuel and Zay Jones, the price gap is not is not as large as it is on DK. Whereas on DK, the price gap is larger, um, but because they've priced things down a lot on DK, you don't need the savings to the same degree. So. <clears throat> So I like it. Um, I like DeAndre Carter a lot and think that he's going to get owned, but I don't think he's going to be owned to the extent that he should be. Uh, and so, like, currently I have, you know, currently there's, like, three cheap receivers projecting for really any ownership, like, over 5%, say. 
Uh, and that's Marvin Jones, DeAndre Carter, and Juwan Jennings. And so Juwan Jennings has a very modest role on that offense. He's not produced many, you know, much in the way of ceiling this entire season. Uh, Marvin Jones is old. Um, he, Marvin Jones did wonderfully for us in best ball last year. Uh, but Marvin Jones has one game over 13 DK points on the season. So who would you rather play of those cheap value options? Like for me, I think it's pretty clearly Carter, um, who has three games over 15 DK points on the season. Um, and has not even been a full-time wide receiver the whole year. So, you know, while Marvin Jones has been a full-time wide receiver the entire season, um, you know, he, I don't think he's missed a game. Um, but, uh, you know, Carter has not been and has produced better results, you know, more larger games despite having fewer opportunities on the year compared to Jones. So I think he's clearly the strongest value play um, on the slate at, at the wide receiver position, at least. Um, I have a question for you, which is, how would you think about playing Donald Parham and DeAndre Carter together? Would you do it? Because I'm thinking of it from the perspective that, you know, Everett and Parham are going to be splitting snaps to some extent, and the way that both of their snap counts get significantly extended is if the Chargers play more 12 personnel sets, uh, which would come at the expense of Carter. That's interesting. Um, my initial reaction is if playing Parham must be played with Justin Herbert, um, because Parham is going to derive so much of his fantasy expectation from touchdown equity, uh, which ties directly to Justin Herbert. That said, um, I would think that DeAndre Carter would just be the odd men out if the Chargers are going to commit to 12 personnel as their base. I don't see that happening, and the reason is because this team has already transitioned to a heavier rate of 12 personnel over the past six weeks of play. They're up into the like 50, 40 to 60% weekly 12 personnel rate, um, and that, is, that was with Mike Evans and Keenan Allen healthy. The thinking is now they're probably not going to have room for that to increase and Jordan Palmer is probably not going to operate as a near-every-down player. So I think you're going to see a little bit of, like, Keenan Allen is the only near-every-down snap rate player with um, Donald Parham and DeAndre Carter and Jordan Palmer all playing a little bit more of a not, not purely a strict, like, situational role. But kind of along those lines, um, looking at their snap rates, um, and we'll talk about this here too, what like Mike Williams being out means. I mean, Mike Williams missed four games this season. Two of those were games that Keenan Allen also missed. Austin Eckler saw 41 targets over those four games. So, I mean, 10 targets a game is, is no shitter. Um, like I said, two of those games were played also without Keenan Allen. But... If we look at the snap rates um, when Mike Williams last missed, again, two of those contests were without Keenan Allen as well. So those first two contests, Josh Palmer and DeAndre Carter were 85% plus snap rate players. The second two, which was, uh, that was when Michael Bandy was stepping into like a near every down role, like preseason star Michael Bandy. Oh, yeah. 
when when Keenan Allen returned, Keenan returned to snap rates of 68% and 89%, and DeAndre Carter still played 82% and 80% of the offensive snaps. The the big issue with projecting that to remain rather static moving forward is Gerald Everett was out for uh, one of those games. They were playing about 15 to 25% 12 personnel during that four-week window. And that has already naturally shifted, or I guess not naturally, but they have purposefully shifted to a, a higher rate of 12 personnel over the last about month of play um, once Donald Parham returned from his um, IR stint. Uh, Parham returned from IR in week 15, has played between 31% and 51% the offensive snaps uh, during that time, and the, 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 his season high was in week 18 when he played 51%. But over that time frame, that four-week window when Parham returned, as opposed to phasing Trey McKitty out of the, the lineup and just going with like their 12 personnel sets are both pass-catching tight ends, they kept Trey McKitty and they went to increased rates of 12 personnel into this, this 40 to 60% um, total 12 personnel snap rate range. So the long story of that is like we can't just look at like what they did earlier in the season because their offense has changed a little bit. As such, I think that Josh Palmer, who has been operating in this 60 to 80% snap rate range over the last month, and DeAndre Carter, who has been in this 25 to 60% snap rate range, I think we're going to see both of those guys jump a little bit. When Mike Williams went down in week 18, it was Josh Palmer saw about a 10% increase to his snap rate, and DeAndre Carter saw about a 40% increase to his snap rate. So we're still going to see this like 60-ish percent 11 personnel rate. I just think that we're going to see DeAndre Carter and Josh Palmer mixed a little bit more to get um, Donald Parham on the field in 12 as well that's interesting yeah i feel like i uh spent a lot of money on josh palmer uh this season <laughs> and he never, yeah. i missed him the one week that he smashed which is the most tilting thing um but yeah he was uh it felt like there was oh yeah the, against kansas city yeah it felt like there was a lot of opportunity for him but yeah i think he and it is hard to like it is hard to feel like we can know what the chargers are going to do here because They've they've had so many injuries over the course of the season that we don't have very good sample sizes for any given combination of their pass catchers, right? Like, yeah. you know, Williams has missed games, Keenan Allen has missed games. Like, there's just, we just don't have a great sample of, you know, what it looks like with this particular configuration. There's only been a couple games that we can look at, and... And then you have to you have to also have to consider that in the playoffs, you know, teams are likely to lean more heavily on their their best players or at least the players that they feel are the best options for the matchup in which they have which they are placed that week. And so yeah. the question here is, you know, do they view Josh Palmer as, you know, as a as a critical option for this particular matchup? Do they view DeAndre Carter as a critical option for this matchup? Do they view Donald Parham as a critical option for this matchup? And I don't think we can know for sure, right? I think there's some volatility here. But what we can know is, like, as, as Hilo mentioned, in the last two games, when the Chargers have been playing their starters when they don't need to, um, they've been playing Parham more than Everett, 
which tells me, you know, and that tells me I th- with, I think, a pretty solid degree of confidence that they want Parham on the field, right? Like, they view him as somebody who they want on the field. They want, uh, you know, part of, as, as a core part of their offense in this game, or in generally in games, now that he's back and healthy. So I like that. I like Parham a lot. Um, the pairing with Rant with um, what's his name with Herbert is interesting. I think I'd, I think I'd be okay playing him separately. I mean, I'm trying to like, I'm envisioning. I mean, you're right that he has a lot of touchdown equity, but at his price, I think he only needs he only needs one touchdown to get there, as long as no other tight end goes nuclear, and that doesn't necessarily get Herbert there. So I think, I'd, I think yeah, and there, there's a. But... There's a little bit more layers to that as well. Looking at PFF grades for um, the Chargers pass catchers, primary pass catchers against zone coverage, which the Jacksonville Jaguars over the second half of the season were running about 20% man coverage. So primarily playing from zone with lower than league average blitz rates. When the Chargers have faced an opponent that allows Justin Herbert more time and allows the pass catchers to find the holes in zone coverage. It's been like the Austin Eckler and Keenan Allen show. Yeah. And that makes sense. Those are the guys who are the veterans. They're savvy. They're able to find the holes in, in zone coverage. Like Keenan Allen has a ridiculous 91% reception rate against zone coverage this season, which is insane. Uh, Austin Eckler, 76 targets this season against zone coverage. That's insane for a running back. That that would rank like top 10 in total targets for running backs on the season. And that's just him against zone coverage this year. Um, Mike Williams was above average. But interestingly enough, DeAndre Carter has seen 40 of his 65 targets this season against zone coverage. So that's interesting as well. And he's both of his touchdowns have come against zone coverage. Small sample. Yes, I get it. He only has like four games where he's played a primary wide receiver role, uh, all that good stuff. But I think he's at least somewhat viable. Small sample size alert as well. Donald Parham, only seven targets against zone coverage. We know that he's missed over half of the season on injured reserve, but he's caught six of them for an 86% reception rate against zone coverage as well. So I think going back to like answering your question finally after talking about it for 10 minutes, I think um, I think you would have to play, if you were playing both DeAndre Carter and Donald Parham, I think what you're saying is they are capturing at least two of the touchdowns. And I think in order to do that, you have to pair those two with Justin Herbert and not play Keenan Allen on that roster. I think is the way that I would handle it. Like say Keenan Allen, who is Keenan is, we don't like to use the word lock button, but he's all but a freaking lock button to see double digit targets here. Austin Eckler, very, very likely to approach or exceed double digit targets here. Uh, Just based on the situation, neutral pass rates of the chargers based on their pass rate over expectation. Um, based on all the underlying metric stuff that we talk about. That said, if Keenan Allen sees 12 targets, catches eight balls for 90 yards and doesn't score, he's not going to be optimal on this slate. And if you're saying that, if you're building a roster that tells that story, the most likely path is to maybe even add Eckler to an over-team stack there and say like, hey, the Chargers score four touchdowns and not one of them goes to Keenan. Sorry, bro. Eckler scores two of them. 
Uh, Donald Parham grabs one, and then DeAndre Carter grabs one, uh, which is interesting because all four of those guys would hit value in that situation. Um, I think that's the way I would play it if I were playing both DeAndre Carter and Donald Parham here. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I can see it. I will say one thing to note here, too, that you touched on, that you kind of touched on is uh, way four guys can get there. Recognize that on two game slates, you know, you mentioned something earlier that is, you know, it's likely that you will need at least one player from every different team. Um, assuming no team just gets completely curb stomped, right? And that is likely, right? To be clear, that is the likeliest outcome. It's also how most rosters are going to be built. Um, most people will have someone from each team. Seattle being somewhat of an outlier there, where I think you'll see a decent chunk of rosters with no Seattle player. But I think the bulk of rosters are going to have at least one player from San Francisco, from the Chargers, and from the Jaguars. And so as we think about differentiation, and again, this is more of like what I would consider an MME strategy, a large field strategy. But if you're chasing large field stuff, this becomes almost like a showdown slate in which you need to think about where is it worth giving up, you know, what's likeliest to happen to avoid duplication? Because on a two-game slate, you know, you have the number of viable plays on this slate is actually not that different from a showdown. Um, where, you know, in a showdown, so in a showdown, I usually have around 30 or so players projected total. Um, and some of those players are bench guys who end up getting zeros, right? But there's like 30 or so viable plays on most showdowns. Um, on this slate, I have 36 players currently projected for over 1% ownership. And so it's closer to a showdown than a regular slate. And one of the things you need to think about is, you know, like, is it worth playing a roster that has a, a you know, strong equity to win to come in first? So is a, has a high likelihood of being heavily duplicated. Look, if you're going to, like, if you win the Millie Maker, then, like, you don't really care if that roster is duped, right? Like, it could be duped a hundred times, and you would still come out wildly profitable, even if you max entered the Millie Maker, right? But from an actual, like, EV perspective, building duplicated rosters is massively negative EV. I mean, I've been part of Showdown wins before, where I've max entered a Showdown, I've won it, and I've lost money because it was so heavily duplicated. And that was kind of early in my showdown career when I was just like, what's most likely to win? Um, and so you want to be thinking about how you get different. And so one way to get different, um, or a couple ways to get different, one way to get different is build onslaughts. Instead of building, you know, instead of thinking I'll have Justin Herbert with two pass catchers, have Justin Herbert with three pass catchers plus Austin Eckler or Josh Kelly. Right. Play CMC and Elijah Mitchell on the same roster, like overstack one team betting that that team just scores a ton of points um, like, you know, that they score five or six touchdowns and no other team scores more than three. Um, another option is build some rosters that don't have anyone from those three most popular teams or from one of those three most popular teams. Right. Like so. If, and this is again, this is more large field stuff. But if you're building for larger field tournaments, you know, build a few rosters that don't have a 49er, build a few rosters that don't have a charger and build a few rosters that don't have a Jag because just that simple exclusion of one team is going to achieve really significant differentiation. And again, it's not the most likely outcome, but 
if it hits, you're likely you're you're far less likely to be heavily duplicated than if you build a whole bunch of rosters that have you know two or three each of 49ers, Jags, and and Chargers, which is what most people are going to build around. So like the the thing you said about Herbert and like you know four guys getting there really like maybe want to make sure to to take a, take a moment to mention that because I think that that's highly relevant on a slate on a two game slate. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna close the loop on the Saturday slate uh, because we've already spent forty five minutes, and I want to be able to talk yes. about Sunday and the full slate. Even yeah, dude, we're talkers. That said, we're gonna close the loop by taking a, a the a, a last look at kind of the macro state, looking at projected ownership numbers. The top four expected running backs on the slate: so CMC, Eckler, Etienne, and um, and Kenneth Walker all add up to about 200%. The onesie-twosies of the guys who are not expected to garner a lot of ownership, that the sum of that ownership is about 15%. So what does that mean? That's the ownership, the projections, the models, the algorithms telling us that we can expect about 15% of rosters in play this weekend to utilize a running back in the flex. That makes a lot of sense because one, pricing is tight, two, it's a short slate, Three, we're likely to see more balanced builds as the chalk build this week. So what does that mean? We're going to see, like we talked about earlier, a lot of CMC ETN lineups, a lot of Eckler ETN lineups, a lot of CMC or Eckler plus Kenneth Walker lineups if they're trying to differentiate. So one of the more macro perspective like ways to generate simple leverage is to build these three running back rosters. My favorite way to do that is CMC Eckler ETN to basically because one, we know that three running back builds are not going to be highly owned. And two, we know that CMC Eckler are already going to have a low combinatorial or a relatively low combinatorial ownership on the slate and add ETN to that. It's going to be even lower. But if we take that one step further and, and start talking about like how we build a plus EV lineup from that. That's just an idea at this point. That's, that's a, a theoretical perspective of how we can generate this idea of leverage. But how do we build a plus EV lineup from that? If you add Trevor Lawrence and Christian Kirk to that lineup, knowing that Trevor Lawrence plus ETN plus Christian Kirk is also going to garner low combinatorial ownership, so the, the sum of those pieces played together is going to be lower than, say, Trevor Lawrence plus Zay Jones plus Evan Ingram, because those are the, the perceived value pieces on the slate. Taking that one step further, if you build your core of a roster, Trevor Lawrence plus CMC plus Eckler plus ETN, and then add in Christian Kirk to that stack, that is the start of what we're talking about. This, like, how do we turn these ideas into actionable information and building plus EV rosters. That would be the start of a plus EV roster. Uh, that's where I wanted to go with that. The rest of my thoughts on the Saturday slate are in the end around. The end around is located in the scroll. Um, and the end around is kind of the one-stop shop for big picture game theory thoughts. We will end it with that. And as long as you do not have any parting shots X on the Saturday slate. I don't you want to come back around to the um how to approach a slate through like late swap and such and hedging you want to come back around to that later 
Yeah, I think so. I think I want to do that when we talk about the full six-game slate because I think it's most pertinent to that. Cool. Cool. Spoilers. Um, yeah. Oh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're gonna talk about that shit. Um, <clears throat> if you have questions, there's a raise your hand functionality. If you're new here, raise your hand. We will bring you on stage and you can ask a question. Or if you want to navigate over to the um, the slate QA, drop your question in there and we can get it answered at the end of the show. Oh, can I just jump in really oh. quick with one thing because I know a lot of our folks in here are also be uh, prop betting subs. Uh, we are posting a prop on O'Shea Brissett on the Indiana Pacers over 12.5 12 points plus rebounds at plus 100 on DraftKings. We haven't projected about 16. Um, so I just want to make sure people don't miss stuff. And of course, just a little taste for anyone who's not in a prop betting set. Everyone's free. Yeah, you better hit this one to drag them in, dude. Just kidding. Um, yeah, I dig it. Let us move over to the three-game slate, um, the Sunday slate. Big picture macro stuff for the Sunday slate. We have Miami visiting Buffalo. In the first game, Buffalo is instilled as 13.5-point favorites at home with a game total of 43.5. We know why that is. Skylar Thompson is going to be starting at uh, quarterback for the Dolphins. They also, the Dolphins, have four members of their offensive line, including both starting tackles, the backup, the primary backup tackle, and the left guard, who are questionable for this game. They have all not practiced. Actually, I didn't check the uh, updated injury report from Friday. I'm going to take a look at that uh, once I get you talking here in a minute. Yeah. Um, that is offensive line issues against the Buffalo Bills. It's not where you want to be. Um, and Raheem Mostert had, Mustard Mustard has been ruled out, leaving Jeffrey Wilson Jr. as the primary running back. With that, let's talk about that situation real quick before we move on. Oh the God. last time, so gross. the last, yeah, dude, the last time that Raheem Mostert missed time was Jeff Wilson's. Um, Basically, he got injured in week 10, which was Jeff Wilson's second week with the team, familiar with the coach, familiar with the scheme, all that good stuff. He played 61% of the offensive snaps in both games that Mostert missed in the only game that Jeff Wilson missed while they've both been on the team. Mostert played 76% of the offensive snaps after playing 73% of the offensive snaps in the game that Wilson got hurt. What does that mean for us now? Chase Edmonds is no longer in the picture. Miles Gaskin is on IR. So that leaves basically just Jeff Wilson, fullback Alec Ingold, and Stavon Ahmed as the expected backfield trio for the Miami Dolphins. Again, offensive line issues, but Jeff Wilson's priced at a nice little Gucci price of only 5.4. So expecting Jeff Wilson to be somewhere in the 60 to 75% snap rate range. And also, oh, by the way, knowing that Skylar Thompson is targeting running backs and tight ends at a 51% clip during his four games where he's played a, a big chunk of the action. You know, there was the game where he got hurt. There was another game. Actually, he's gotten hurt in two games. Um, and he's played two full games. So knowing that, Actually, he's played chunks of three games and two full games. Knowing that, knowing that Skylar Thompson has been confined to 
under six, this is gross, dude, under six yards per attempt, knowing that he's targeting his running backs and his tight ends at a over half of the time on his pass attempts, and knowing that the Dolphins are probably going to be trying to play a little bit of keep away, knowing that the Dolphins have been above league average in pass rate over expectation in every single Tua Tagbailoa start, but below league average in every single non-Tua start this season. We can expect Mike McDaniels to be trying to play a little bit of keep away from Buffalo. What does that mean? That means short area passes. That means slower pace of play. That means increased rush rates. That means trying to march the field and sustain possessions to keep Josh Allen off the field. Knowing all that, Jeff Wilson seeing 60 to 75% of that workload means something at 5.4. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Jeff Wilson is super interesting on a three-game slate price at only 5.4. And we'll talk about the rest of the games here. <clears throat> the rest of the macro stuff, the game of the, of the Sunday slate is the Giants visiting Vikings. We had a preview of this matchup three weeks ago in week 16. Uh, that game ended 27-24 on a career-long 61-yard field goal uh, from Vikings kicker. I forgot his name. Greg Joseph. Yeah, yeah Greg Gay. Greg fucking Joseph. Play a lot of showdowns. You're um, the kickers. <laughs> bro, you know I got time for every showdown slate. Was that a primetime? I can't remember. I have no idea. I don't think so. No, I, don't I play, play primetime showdown, but I ain't got time for every showdown, dude. Um, Yeah. So that game played extremely tight and close throughout. It is a fool's errand. And yes, I got these write-ups out a little bit late, so you probably haven't had a ton of time to digest them. But writing up this game, it's a fool's errand to basically just say like, hey, this happened in the first meeting. This is going to happen again. But for these particular teams, the Giants, who have basically let this entire season come to them and then reacted... They are not pushing the pace. They are not pushing downfield attempts on their own. They are bottom. They are dead last in the league in explosive play right through the air. And then the Vikings, who are this primarily short to intermediate pass offense that is not attacking downfield at a high frequency until forced to do so. When you take the dynamics of these two teams... It then, yes, it becomes very likely, again, that this game plays very, very close throughout. It is highly unlikely that one of these teams is going to jump out to a two-score lead. It is highly unlikely that the Minnesota Vikings defense is not going to allow the Giants to continue to run their preferred game plan, which is below average pass rate over expectation. It is a very, very run-balanced uh, offensive game plan. So. Yeah, like it, it is foolish to just think like this is what happened last time. This is going to happen again this time. For these two teams, it is highly likely that we see a very closely contested kind of back and forth game here. Whether that evolves into a high scoring back and forth affair or which the field is completely discounting a low scoring slugfest completely relies on these two teams ability to score when they enter the red zone. I say that because both of these teams, they're ranked 7th and 8th in red zone touchdown rate, with the Giants actually at 7th and the Minnesota Vikings at 8th. That said, the Giants are 3rd in red zone touchdown rate allowed. So if the Giants are able to keep the Vikings out of the end zone when they enter the red zone, 
this could develop into a game where, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the Giants that are kind of dictating the game environment here, which I feel like the field is completely discounting on this slate. I even, I, God, dude, all anybody was talking about the last time these two teams played, it was the top expected game environment on the slate. Everyone was like, this game cannot fail. I was preaching that, hey, there are more paths to failure, and then it became the game of the slate. <laughs> but I'm sticking to that. This, this game has more paths to failure than I think the field is going to give credit for this weekend, um, and it's likely going to come down to Wink Martindale's ability to keep the Vikings out of the end zone when they enter the red zone. Last game, the Vikings only had four red zone trips. I say only, that's about league average for um, a standard NFL team this year. Four red zone trips. They scored a touchdown on three of those trips in the first meeting. They kicked a field goal on the other, and they did not enter the red zone. Um, obviously, on the last possession was outside the red zone. They kicked a 61-yarder to win the game. So if they only score in two out of their four, two out of their five red zone trips this week, it could become a, a game environment that is much more dictated by the Giants. That's the scoop on that one. Uh, sorry, I'm going to talk a little bit longer. Last game of the slate is Baltimore Ravens visiting Cincinnati Bengals. We know the issues with the Ravens. Um, Gus Edwards is still working his way through the league's concussion protocol. He has until, uh, what is it, tonight to clear? Um, and we have uh, Lamar Jackson, who is still listed as doubtful, highly, highly unlikely that he is going to play this weekend. Um, he self-reported via Twitter yesterday that he has a grade two, borderline grade three PCL strain. Typically, the recovery window for that is six to 10 weeks. So, highly unlikely that he's playing this week. And then Sammy Watkins. So, that is leading to. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, Sammy, Sammy welcome Watkins, back to the team. Who bro. spent like his entire career injured is like, how dare he be injured? Get back on the field. I know. <laughs> and, he, and he's been with the club for all of two weeks again. It's like, cool, bro. Who the fuck is this guy again? Anyway. Um, the, uh, the Bengals are instilled as eight and a half point favorites. That line has, um, moved up. It was bet up from six and a half open all the way up to Bengals by 10. It has since been bet down over the last 36 hours. Uh, yep. About 36 hours to the Bengals favored by eight and a half. The game total has come down from an open of 43 and a half down, down to 40.5. So that is some significant line movement as well. All of that checks out makes sense. We'll talk about, uh, I guess, before we get into that, what do you think about this slate from a macro perspective, Brian? Uh, so it's weird. Like, but this slate is very similar to Saturday, right? In that in both, both Saturday and Sunday have one game that's projected to be competitive, A, competitive with a close spread, and B, a materially higher total. And then... Game, and then the, the rest of the slate, which Saturday is just one other game and Sunday is two games, uh, is projected to be lower, lower game total on the whole and one team very heavily favored. And so, you know, on, sat on Saturday's slate, we have the Seahawks as sort of the forgotten team and we have the 49ers as the like blowout curb stomp team and then one competitive game. Uh, on Sunday, we have the Giants and Vikings as competitive then we have the Bills and the Bengals with healthy, with reasonably healthy team totals as curb stomp teams. And then the Ravens and the Dolphins as the, you know, 
enjoy your enjoy your uh, off season real soon here, friends. Teams, um, which is super. Fun. It's, it's weird to me that both slates are shaping up that way because it's just such a similarity in um, essentially the same like the same kind of dynamic is in play here. The difference from the sort of macro view to me is I'm thinking about it in terms of slate structure. And so, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we start talking about like the timing of the slate and how you can think about swap. Um, but on the Saturday slate, the quote unquote best game uh, is is the late game. And the, 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 the blowout game is the early game. Uh, and on the Sunday slate, the best game to target that everyone is going to be focusing on is kind of is smack in the middle. And so that creates a different dynamic if you're building around the idea of wanting to have like of wanting to keep yourself uh, with some swap options and you're building around that concept of like swap optionality. Um, I think that makes it really interesting where you have uh, an early game where, you know, very few, very few people are going to play any Dolphins. Um, and then, and a, but a good number of people are going to play the Bills because they have the highest team total on the slate, uh, and they're the Bills, so everyone loves playing now. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's really interesting because the concept of this here is that as the game goes on, and I don't want to like dig into it until we're done with the slate, right? Um, but the broad concept here is that as the day goes on, you have more information, and since most people don't late swap most people aren't making use of that additional information to make lineup changes. If you are willing to spend the time to, you know, make, to adjust and, and make lineup changes, then you can, um, then you have an edge and we'll talk about how to use that edge. But like the more information you have, the better decision you can make. Right. And so like you get more information throughout the day. And so there's an, the dynamic of having the, the highest total and highest ownership game right in the middle is really interesting because on Saturday, we won't have as much information because most of the ownership is clustered in the late game. So we won't have as much information from the early game as we will. On Sunday, we'll have more information uh, from the first game and then the second game uh, that lets us kind of think about how to strategize for our, our lineups as the day continues to progress, or also relevant for the full slate, of course, right? Um, I think that what you're gonna see, there's a lot of ownership on Buffalo. Um, there is, a, a an astounding amount of ownership to me on the Giants. The Giants, like if you guys listen to the show regularly, you remember that one of the exercises that I like to do is look at the total non-QB, non-DST ownership, the ownership for all the skill position players uh, from each team. And that's one of the ways that I look at essentially where is the field placing its bats. Um, and the field is very firmly placing its bets on the New York Giants in this game. In this on this slate, uh, the Giants actually have the highest combined ownership of any team, which you know on one level makes sense if you think about like outside of Saquon Barkley, the most expensive Giant is forty two hundred, and so they're also they're also fantastically cheap that it's easy to see how a Giant can get there and be in an optimal roster. Um, I if you if I did say the last time these two teams met, I said something to the effect of I don't know like. At the ownership the Giants are projecting for, I probably will not will go, have anywhere from zero to significantly underweight the entire New York Giants team because I think the chances of them putting up a score that kills me is extremely low, and the chances of them putting up a score that you know I had to have to win a tournament like it's the chances of them putting up a had to have score 
on this passing offense were very low. And that was true. That turned out to be true, right? Like Isaiah Hodgins had a good game. Um, I think he got like 20 DraftKings points, but that wasn't a score you needed. Um, it was a score that helped, but it wasn't a score you needed. Richie James got to like 16 points or something like that. So similarly, like he's fine for his price, but not a score you needed. The slate dynamic though here is different, right? Um, on the one hand, the Giants are, because it's only a three game slate, the Giants are way more owned than they were on that full Sunday slate uh, when we had these teams last met. On the other hand, we only have a three-game slate. And so when you look at the other, like, 4K pass catchers or 4K skill position players, on a full Sunday slate, we had a lot more choice, right? We had a lot more options. There were a lot more guys who could feasibly beat out these cheap pass catchers. Uh, On this three-game slate, the choices of like good value options who were priced in that like 4k and below range you're getting into pretty thin ter- territory pretty quickly you've got tyler boyd and then you know like i don't know you want to play demarcus robinson like the bane of my dfs existence good luck do i know you bastard i am i cannot roster that guy <laughs> i hate him and i'm pretty sure he hates me <laughs> i'm gonna start a twitter fight with him someday it's gonna be great Hey, dude, did, before you continue, I just want to note real quick that the full slate that this game was on in week 16, the Millie winner had six players from this fucking game, dude. Yeah, of course, right? Like, because it was really highly owned, and the game did well, and the giant, the, the Vikings smashed, right? So it probably had, like, I'm guessing they had, what, Hodgins and Richie James, and that was the game that, that Hawkinson went nuclear, right? Yeah, well, it was a Daniel Jones Hawkins triple. Cousins, and... No, dude. It was a Daniel Damn Jones man. triple with Saquon Barkley, Isaiah Hodgins, and Richie James brought back with both TJ Hawkinson and Justin Jones. Nice. And, that's awesome. and I was like talking all week about like how it could fail. Yeah. I was like, okay, cool, cool. And cool. it could, so right? Like it totally could have. Um, but it didn't. Just because the thing can fail doesn't mean it will. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, you're looking at the odds relative to ownership when you make those kind of calls. And like it did win tournaments because like these guys put up strong scores. They didn't put up had to have scores, right? So like you didn't need Richie James or Isaiah Hodgins to win a tournament. They they put up helpful scores, right? Um, but they didn't put up like scores that you could not win without. And that's kind of like what I'm looking for. I'm looking for like what are the like really high ownership. If I think that the guy's ceiling is a helpful score, but not a score that I can't win without. I'm more I'm generally more willing to avoid that play because I think that there's essentially more risk than reward. I don't know if that's the case here though, because we only have a three-game slate and there just aren't a lot of really strong other value options. I mean, I think it's pretty clear to me that if I'm doing, you know, multi-entry, uh, which I will be, that, you know, I want to be overweight the guys that are in the price range of these like cheap giants guys because you know the cheap giants guys are strong plays on a, on a three-game slate right they're gonna be on the field all the time and the giants are probably gonna be passing a fair bit in this game but like is tyler boyd you know really that much worse of a play than you know Arya slayton i think they're pretty close right like tyler boyd is probably a better player uh but he's got you know he's clearly third on the depth chart of of wide receivers in the Bengals, whereas Slayton, you know, is likely to get more volume. Um, but like you've got you've got plays who are pretty similar in like Boyd and KJ Osborne and He Who Shall Not Be Named, um, even Isaiah McKenzie to a slightly lesser extent. 
um, where or Khalil Shakir if McKenzie ends up missing. I don't I don't think he's expected to miss. I think he's expected to play, but he is questionable. Um, so I think there's some options you can consider where the field is essentially expressing an enormously high degree of confidence that the Giants are going to end are going to put up a performance that's going to land at least one of their players in a winning tournament lineup. And when I say that, what I mean is the combined giant skill position player ownership is about 180% currently. So the that which means the average roster is going to have 1.8 giants on it, not including Daniel Jones and the Giants defense, right? That's just the skill position players. So if those ownership projections hold up, that means you know that if you, you the leverage you would get from avoiding the Giants, even though they're strong plays, uh, would be enormous because the vast majority of rosters are going to have at least one giant on them. So if I were, so as I'm going to think about it is, you know, what are the chances that zero giants are on the winning lineup? I don't know. You know, I don't know what that chance is. It's not 0% though. Right. And if something like 90% of rosters are going to have a giant on them, I want to probably be overweight the zero giants rosters even though it's going to feel really shitty when you're building rosters and looking at your like lineup projections yeah so that brings up an interesting point that this three game slate is almost bass backwards from the two game slate on saturday in the sense that there are very little very few um viable on paper value plays on the saturday slate which is going to force more of this balanced build it's the exact opposite on the Sunday slate where we have all these Giants available, uh, Giants players available to us as viable on paper value plays. That's going to lead to Saquon Barkley plus Dalvin Cook uh, being like one of the primary starting points for rosters because you have the salary to do that. The other, let's type some loose ends uh, before we continue. The four offensive linemen for the Dolphins that um, had not practiced on Thursday. Teron Armstead, um, who is obviously primary blindside protection for the quarterback, he's listed with a toe, pec, knee, and hip injury, bruh. It sucks getting old. He's got everything going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, DNP, DNP Wednesday, DNP Thursday, limited Friday questionable. Liam Eichenberg, who is the starting left guard, above average run blocker, very, very good in pass protection. DNP, 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 listed as doubtful. Kendall Lamb who is the starting right tackle, listed with an ankle injury, DMP, DMP, limited, questionable. And then the third string, or like the, the first tackle in behind the starting tackles, is Brandon Shell, DMP, 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 questionable. So these guys are banged the F up um, along the offensive line. They also have... Um, who else is Tua's obviously out. Teddy Bridgewater is listed with his knee and his, his uh, finger as questionable. He got in limited practices all week. The big one actually is kind of interesting is fullback Alec Ingold. He got in limited practices all three days listed with a thumb injury. He is questionable as well. Um, I would expect him to play and he's going to affect their, probably their 21 versus 12 personnel utilization because this is an offense know mike mcdaniel's based on the shanahan tree this is an offense that operates via elevated rates of 21 and 12 personnel if alec ingold suddenly does not play that is very very likely to increase the 12 personnel rates that we see from miami this week which means gross mike gasucki is going to be on the field more 
we'll leave that at that. Tying up the loose ends on the Ravens. Lamar Jackson was, in fact, ruled out today. Tyler Huntley is listed as questionable. He got in a full practice on Friday. He's probably going to play. The big thing with Tyler Huntley is the tendonitis in his throwing shoulder, um, which has affected his ability to throw the ball downfield. Uh, cornerback Brandon Stevens, who's kind of a situational cornerback for them, DNP all week with an illness. He is out. And then Tylen Wallace, who is a situational wide receiver. Basically, all of their wide receivers are situational wide receivers, um, but he had a hamstring strain uh, on Wednesday's practice, limited DNP, and is out. That brings us to the Bills. And you mentioned Isaiah McKenzie is listed as questionable. He is, in fact, listed as questionable. I think that is veteran treatment in the sense that they don't want to rule him out on Friday when he can play without receiving any practice reps. Mm -hmm. But he strained his hamstring on Wednesday, which caused him to be listed as limited, was a DNP on Thursday and Friday. So he didn't practice to end the week at all with his hamstring injury. We don't know the severity. We don't know the grade strength of the hamstring strain. But typically a player picking up a hamstring strain in practice midweek and then not practicing afterwards is uh, an ominous sign. That said... Jamison Crowder was his 21 day practice window was opened, but he has been reported to not be activated or expected to not be activated prior to this game. And in associated news, they signed Cole Beasley to the full-time active roster. He had been on the practice squad. He was looking at either his third elevation or they had to sign him. They chose to sign him. So that could be an indicator of Isaiah McKenzie's status uh, come game day as well that said how dope would it be for cole beasley to just come back guns a blazing pushes rookie khalil shakir aside and like go has like a vintage cole beasley playoff game that'd be dope anyway i digress um that's the uh that's the loose ends of the injury news for the sunday slate all right that was a lot sorry i had to cough real quick so that is the macro of the slate. Let's talk about the theoretical components of the slate. We talked about it a little bit uh, earlier when I mentioned that, like, hey, this, this slate is almost 180 out from the, the macro perspective, the theoretical perspective, in that we have all these, um, we have all these expected you know, solid on-paper value plays, which is probably going to lead to people placing the bets with their salary on places with perceived highest degree of certainty. Where is that? That's Saquon Barkley. That's Dalvin Cook. That is Justin Jefferson. That is Jamar Chase. That is to a lesser extent, but still expected to garner a ton of ownership, Stephon Diggs. Uh, one place we're not really seeing that is Mark Andrews, who's the highest priced uh, tight end by 100 over TJ Hawkinson, priced at 5.2. So we're likely to see these rosters that are team jam them in and pick one of the, the Giants' primary wide receivers um, as the value piece to make it work. We're also likely to see, this kind of blew my mind when I was writing the slate up, but we're also likely to see Joe Mixon garner some ownership, um, which kind of blows my mind, to be honest, because he has one game over 21 fantasy points all season. It, was his, it only took him five touchdowns to <laughs> to freaking get there remember how much we shit on him that week and then he puts up five touchdowns for like the, 
third best game, fantasy score of all good time. Fantasy game of his entire career, his entire <laughs> season, and and not just a good game. It was like one of the top fantasy games of all time. Like, yeah, that's classic. Like he listened dude. to the that's show and was like, "Fuck f- those guys." <laughs> yeah, good clean family fun right there, huh? Anyway. Joe Mixon is also expected to garner ownership, and that is, I think, another function of this like idea that we have viable, you know, salary saving value available to us. So, with that said, that goes into, or I guess that circles back to how different these two slates are, and the increased viability of guys like Jeff Wilson Jr., who we I talked about him already. All the reasons to buy into that. Now we start, start talking about the, the theoretical components and you start seeing why I'm more and more interested in a play like that. Also, we're going to start talking about the idea of gathering information before making follow-on decisions on a slate like this. It's very similar to the Thanksgiving slate where every game is at a different time. The increased viewership, all that, they know. The NFL knows that the country is going to be watching, basically. So they're going to spread out the games. With that... If we treat prior to kickoff of each individual game as an additional decision point on the game tree, without getting into all the theoretical bullshit behind the game theoretics of that statement, the game tree is the path, all the different choices that we can make in this game of DFS. Think about your starting point is when you open up DraftKings, you see a blank roster. That is the starting point. From there... It branches off into borderline infinite different ways that you can go on the game tree. The optimal roster for a given slate is one specific route down that game tree with every roster spot that you put into play being a decision node. We call it a decision checkpoint where you make a decision where you can go left, right, middle, straight, forward, any multitude of different ways at a position. So say for the quarterback position on this slate, We have six different paths that we can branch out if that is the starting point of our roster. If we're building a roster, we're starting at quarterback. We have six different options available to us. We have Josh Allen, we have Joe Burrow, we have Kirk Cousins, Daniel Jones, and then down into Tyler Huntley and um, uh, Skylar Thompson. So from there, then you go to your next running back position. There's, We'll say every team has two viable running backs, so there's 12 different decision or routes you can take from there. You keep going down along the roster. But now, since we have three games that are separated by time, that is another variable for us. And that is another, we can stomp a, a, a hard stop, a stop sign in this route of the, of the game tree. Say so this is a primary decision point on this slate where now we gain additional information based on the game that has already played. So if you approach the slate through that mindset, We don't have to build a roster for the entire slate. We have to build our exposure out for the first game across our portfolio. And if we approach the slate like that, we can reassess at halftime of the Miami-Buffalo game, after the final whistle is blown of the Miami-Buffalo game, reassess our rosters, our portfolio of rosters, each one taking this new assessment How close was I to optimal? How many dead roster spots did I have? How do I adjust my game plan for the following two games on this three-game slate to account for that? Do I need to accept more variance or more risk because I have a dead roster spot, a guy 
um, that got me three fantasy points, um, who was supposed to be like my go-to cheap option. That is, you are no longer on the optimal path. So you have to figure out how you can adjust for that and base your nap, your next decisions off of that information. We also get information like ownership projection or actual ownership numbers where we can say like, oh, holy shit, uh, Josh Allen was 40% owned. He was projected to be 30% owned. And we see that Stefan Diggs is 45% owned. He was projected to be 33% owned. That is information because both those guys, we get more than just that raw ownership numbers. We get, hey, I know a good chunk of the field, like 33% of the field just sunk a shit ton of their salary into two spots on their roster. How did Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs perform? Did they light the slate on fire and you needed to have them? Well, now you got to alter your decision-making process. Did, they, did Josh Allen put up 22 fantasy points and, and Stefan Diggs put up 16? Well, that is no longer optimal. So those rosters are basically dead. They are not winning anything. So now I can adjust my decisions for the following game. So that discussion is super, super important on this weekend as a whole because we see that in every slate that is not the showdown slates. We see that in the Saturday slate. We see that in the Sunday slate. We see that in the full six-game slate. What do you have to add to that discussion, X, that I did not hit? So one thing to recognize about ownership, right, is it's a zero-sum game. And so, you know, if, if one guy comes in over or under his projection, someone else changes too, right? And so if Diggs, like if we project Diggs for 33% ownership or whatever it was you said, and he comes in at 45, like that doesn't just mean that we were off on Diggs. You have to think about who else that influences. And because Diggs is, you know, one of the more expensive wide receivers, it's probably going to have a direct impact on the ownership of other expensive wide receivers or, or other expensive plays, right? So that Diggs ownership could come from, it probably comes from some combination of like Justin Jefferson and Saquon Barkley and Jamar Chase and Dalvin Cook and, you know, and then Joe Mixon. And you would know Tyree Kill's ownership, I think it's the same game. So, you know, you've got to think about how that flows um, and what what other impact that's going to have. And so if a player comes in way above or way under ownership, you have to think about how that's going to affect ownership for the rest of the slate because you're going to be, you, you want to make sure you're not sitting there making decisions thinking, well, ownership for this, this, you know, I'm going to be over, I'm going to play a lot of Dalvin Cook because, you know, Zan said he's going to be 40% owned. But then if, you know, some other things play out, like if, you know, if, if a lot more people play Devin Singletary or Jeff Wilson than expected, that's going to draw from Dalvin Cook's ownership, even though they aren't the same price, but they occupy the same running back position, right? And so it will still draw down some, some from Dalvin Cook. And so now your Dalvin Cook play, if you thought about like, oh, I want to be overweight on Dalvin Cook, well, guess what? Now he's lower owned, so that play probably looks stronger. Um, if you wanted to be way overweight on Jamar Chase, for example, and then Diggs comes in at 15% and we had him at 33%, well, guess what? Jamar Chase is like one of the closest other players on the slate in price to Steph Diggs. So what that tells you is there's a good chance that Jamar Chase is going to come in over his ownership projection and your quote unquote sneaky Jamar Chase play may, or, you know, going over the field on Jamar Chase with your 40% versus his 32% projection. Maybe you're not as over the field as you thought. Maybe you're not over the field at all. So you want to be thinking about ownership as the slate flows um, because that's going to help you make good decisions. Next up is 
make sure that you're not forgetting rosters. Like, it's really easy to be like, well, that roster's dead. Um, <clears throat> but in the long run, and, and we don't want to compete in tournaments for min caches, right? That's not why we play DFS. But in the long run, you can make a material contribution to your overall ROI by trying to salvage dead rosters. Rosters that like that look like they're done for. Um, and, you know, things like, I don't know, Maybe you started with uh, maybe you started with Josh Allen, Steph Diggs on a roster, and you're like, "Aha! I'm gonna I'm gonna hope I'm gonna hope they go off." And let's say that they just dud. Let's say all the scoring comes through the running backs in that game or whatever. Well, now you have to pivot that roster to some you know much more contrarian plays, and so maybe you swap over off of all your cheap giants on that roster, and you swap over to like KJ Osborne and Tyler Boyd instead of like you know Richie James and Isaiah Hodgins. And, you know, your odds of your odds of like that hitting are not the highest. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to salvage that roster from, you know, from a from a guaranteed zero to, you know, maybe a minimum cash. And in the long like it's not sexy, but in the long run, that will make a significant difference to your ROI if you're able to salvage min caches with some degree of frequency. Um, the other thing is, I think that what Hila said, the way you phrased it is really, really smart about how it's. You know, you're making, it's like you, you have a set of decisions to make each lock. And, you know, you should be thinking about how you want your exposure to play out. And you, you said something, you're building rosters just for that game. So what I used to do on slates like this was I would, you know, build, set up my rules in the optimizer like normal. I would run my, you know, run all the rosters. I click run, I'd save them, hooray. And then I'd go back later and I'd look at how they're doing and I'd tweak and blah, blah, blah. Um, over time, though, I've come to believe that there's actually a better way to do this, uh, which is instead of, instead of trying to just build all your rosters all at once, consider building them in pieces. And, like, you should have an idea of how each roster is going to play out. So you should, like, this is a bill stack. This is going to be a Bengal stack, whatever, right? Um, you don't want to get stuck where you, like, start building the first part of a roster and then realize you don't have enough salary to put viable plays on the last part of the roster. But you want to think about how you're diversifying exposure across games, especially if you're playing a good number of rosters. So if you're playing 10 rosters, you might be like, I'm going to have one roster be a Bills onslaught, betting the Bills score five touchdowns. And I'm going to have one roster as sort of a skinnier Bills stack um, with, you know, Allen and one or two of his pass catchers and maybe I'll bring back Jeff Wilson. And, you know, like you, you start you sort of distribute from there. If you have a bunch of rosters, you can think about, well, I'm going to have, you know, this many Bills stacks and this many stacks of this quarterback and blah, blah, blah. Um, but where it gets interesting and where it gets like useful is what I've learned is I think that I, I want duplication in my early rosters. Like I want to have multiple rosters that have the exact combination of Josh Allen, Dawson Knox and Gabe Davis. And I want to have several rosters with the exact combination of Josh Allen and Gabe Davis and Steph Diggs and Josh Allen and Steph Diggs and, uh, and Dawson Knox. And I want some of those rosters to have, Jeff Wilson coming back and some not to. And I want probably a couple of each to have Terry Kill. And it sounds like I'm like going way overweight this game and I'm not. What I'm thinking about is I want to make sure that 
when I get to the next game, like this game, this game comes to a close and I say, okay, cool. Now I'm going to see what I'm going to do for the next game. I want to make sure that I don't just have one roster that's live, right? Because you're, you're going to do after the first game is you're going to go look through all your rosters and say, okay, what rosters look live? What rosters look dead? And then what rosters are just, I don't know yet, right? And so if you're going through your your live rosters, you're trying to make sure that if something hits like the nuts in the early game, that you have some combinations of that. And ideally what you want is more than one, because if you only have one roster that has the nut combination from the early game, then you better get everything exactly right from the late games, right? Which is hard. It's easier from my perspective if you try to have multiple rosters. Like I will usually try to embrace a little more risk in the early game because then I know if I'm ahead, I can play that kind of safely, but I want multiple options. So essentially I wanna I wanna set myself up so I have like multiple shots on goal to be, you know, to, to pretend I'm a hockey player for a minute. Um, I wanna have multiple shots on goal uh, with rosters that start out well. So if my roster starts off as, you know, as perfectly as I could hope, I wanna have a few iterations of that so that I can then uh, I can then have multiple opportunities to get the right combination around that early setup. Um, and so that's how I think about it. And so like, I try to make sure, so what I've often done actually, instead of running like a set of 150 lineups, if I'm doing, if I'm doing NME on a slate like this, I will do a set of 50 lineups and then enter each lineup three times. And that makes sure that I get like the right, or like as, as much exposure to the best possible early game combinations. And I have multiple iterations of them. So that if one of them hits, I now have a couple different opportunities to, uh, to build around the early hit um, to try and give myself the best chance of getting the right later pieces. Because there's nothing more frustrating. Well, there's, okay, there are things more frustrating. But it is very frustrating to feel like, aha, I, 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 here's a roster where I got the early game exactly right. I got the nuts and, I, and it wasn't even that owned and cool. Now I just need to build around it. But then you only have one chance, right, to get the other two or th you know, two games on the slate right or one game on the slate right on Saturday. Like, I want to make sure that if I get that, if I get that nut outcome from the early game, especially if I get it at low ownership, I want to make sure that I have a couple of opportunities to capitalize on that. That was rambly. I hope that made No, that was, <laughs> that was well articulated. That was well articulated. How do we apply that for our single entry or three max people in the crowd? You have to take some stance, some targeted leverage situations. Um, a couple of those that are pertinent to this slate is, hey, like the, the Bills have played at more average pass rate over expectation over the second half of the season compared to the beginning of the season where they were just passing <laughs> without, you know, with little regard, which is now like the Cincinnati Bengals, but I digress. Um, so a targeted leverage situation is, knowing that Josh Allen is going to be 30 to 35% owned, knowing that Stephon Diggs is going to be 33 to 35% owned, knowing that Stephon Diggs has only two double-digit target games of the second half of the season, that is a spot to take a little leverage stance on. Single entry, three max, you can fade uh, Stephon Diggs. You can play... Um, zero of your three or four rosters containing Josh Allen and go from there and just bet that he, he scores, you know, he doesn't score on the ground and he passes for two touchdowns. Maybe the defense scores a touchdown. So thinking about 
how does this player fail on the first game to set me up on this particular roster? If I'm playing single entry on this particular slate, I'm highly, highly considering the Buffalo defense and maybe just one secondary option of the Bills and or Jeff Wilson as my single entry from the first game and then reassessing after that because there are more paths than public perception based on expected ownership numbers to Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs failing because they have been, and I say they, the the Buffalo Bills have been a much more pass-balanced team instead of how they started the season, which was just passing with zero regard, which is how they handled last year, basically. So that is how you build in these, you, you got to take a stand type leverage situations um, in single entry three max. I mean, looking at the Bills pass rate over expectation value over the first 11 weeks of the season, they were at like 5% or more higher than league average and pass rate over expectation. That is significant. Over the subsequent seven games, well, six minus the, the game against the, the Bengals, they have been hovering right around league average and pass rate over expectation. This is a very, very different team. They're trying to win differently. Look at Josh Allen's um, pass attempts over that span. So from... Week 11 is really when they transitioned to this more balanced offense. Week 11 against Cleveland, they won 31 to 23, and it wasn't until a late comeback by Cleveland that made it even that close. Josh Allen, 27 pass attempts. A 28 to 25 a back and forth affair against Detroit. Josh Allen, 42 pass attempts. That's good. A 24 to 10 shellacking of the Patriots, 33 pass attempts. 20 to 12 win over the Jets. They're not just trying to blow teams out anymore. 20 to 12, 27 Josh Allen pass attempts. Week 15 against Miami. It was a back and forth 32 to 29 narrow victory. Last second, two heroics, Josh <laughs> Allen heroics. 40 pass attempts. That was good. Chicago absolutely shit stomped them. 35 to 13, 26 pass attempts. Their final game of the season, week 18 against New England. 31 Josh Allen pass attempts. And that was when they are trying to lock up, um, still had a chance at the uh, bye. Actually, no, they didn't by then. They were trying to hold off the Bengals for the number two seed at that point. Uh, because the, what, the, the Chiefs played the day before? Yeah, they played Saturday, Saturday, right? Yeah, so what I'm getting at here is since week 11, Josh Allen has two games greater than 33 pass attempts. His first 10 games of the season, 31, 38, 63, 36, 31, 40, 25 against Green Bay, easy win, 34, 43. The point here is they're winning, trying to win games differently. So if Josh Allen is going to be on a third of the rosters for my single entry three max players in the room, like that is a situation where I'm looking to take a little bit of leverage on by not playing Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. I'll be looking to play Jeff Wilson, like we talked about, looking to maybe mix in, um, like spread some secondary options of the Buffalo Bills across my four to however many rosters you're going to enter for that week. Um, looking to play, probably bump how many rosters I'm going to play the Buffalo Bills defense because a viable path for Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs to quote unquote fail here 
is for their defense to generate some scoring or generate some short fields, generate some takeaways, um, limit the time of possession that the Bills offense is going to have. One of the ways to do that is through a defensive touchdown. Um, and obviously we know how variant that act is, but that is a viable path for those two to fail, quote unquote, here. So that's that's that discussion as it pertains to single entry three max play. Uh, Got to take some targeted leverage stances yeah. here. And you always have to make stance, uh, yeah, right? To some extent, like in your if you're doing if you're spreading your exposure out through MME, taking a stand is likely going to look a little different. You know, you I know people who play MME and who do you know a hundred percent of a player they will lock button players or just X them out entirely. But most people, like you're still ta- you're taking a stand through exposure, right? So. In a smaller in a smaller sample size of rosters, you do have to take slightly bolder stands um, than an MME. But you know the the upside of that is, of course, you have to beat fewer rosters to win. So, greed, like, and I think that Allen feels like the most logical place of you know the most logical place to me to on this on the big slate on the Sunday slate to to consider le- getting leverage. One is Josh Allen. Two is Joe Mixon, who I just think is bad. Um, and three would be, you're running out of running backs, but three would be Saquon Barkley, because I just feel like that spot, he, he might be that he might end up being the highest owned player of the Sunday, the entire Sunday slate. And I think a ceiling on the road as underdogs against a Minnesota defense that is more vulnerable in the air than on the ground does not feel like the best spot for him to be successful to me. Like there's, but you know, but again, like this, you could play anything, right? But you're going to have to make some decisions about where you're willing to take, where you're willing to embrace risk and where you're willing to, you know, try and avoid risk. On the other side of that, Saquon Barkley specifically for him, his roles changed a little bit over the last month of play. They've played in two competitive games over the last four games, and he saw 18 combined targets in those games. So that's at least worth considering, uh, knowing that we expect this game to be a, l- a little bit more biased towards the competitive yeah. side. Yeah, I don't mean I don't hate Barkley by any means. Um, it's just whenever I see a player that owned, I'm always like, hmm, what happens if they fail and how does that play out? Yeah, you're right. Barkley uh, said, "Don't play Saquon." Barkley is pretty clearly. Yeah, don't, please don't take away Zam said, "Don't play Saquon." He's trash. <laughs> um, no, Saquon's good, right? He's a good play. Um, but, but we all you're going to have to fade someone, and you're going to have to fade. You know, you're going to have to. You can't build a roster that has all the good plays on it, right? So you have to choose. You have to choose your spots, and you're going to have to pick some highly owned guys to avoid, and hope that that works out in your favor. Yeah, along those same lines of discussion, the level one game theory, so like where the field is now, I'm not going to get into that discussion for the new members. This has been covered throughout the season, but the, the level one game theory thought about like, oh shit, how do I handle the expected ownership of Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase is the pivot game. It's like, okay, Jefferson, Chase, and Stephon Diggs are all going to be highly owned. Who else is priced around them and, and could go off? Oh, Tyreek Hill, dude. He's this badass wide receiver priced at 7.9, right smack dab in the middle of all those guys. Not really. Like, the leverage angle there is, yeah, to play this Devin Singletary or Jeff Wilson game. It's to change where you're allocating salary smartly. And that is kind of this I, one of the levels of game theory discussion uh, that we've gotten into this season. Be on team mid-range, uh, right? Like, 
again, especially on the side yeah, of so exactly. where there's a lot of like where there's a lot of what is perceived as really strong value of these Giants receivers, the bulk of rosters are going to look like, you know, pay up, um, have at least one elite receiver, at least one you know running back priced at Joe Mixon or above. So like that's Mixon, Dalvin, and Saquon. Uh, so you're gonna have rosters that basically have they have Mixon, Dalvin, or Saquon. And they have Jefferson, Chase, or Diggs. There's going to be a large percentage of rosters that have two to two or three of those players, and they make it fit by playing like you know Isaiah Hodgins, Richie James, um, Darius Slayton, even like Demarcus Robinson, uh, playing like Dawson Knox or Hayden Hurst or Daniel Bellinger at tight end. So you know, as always, when we know how the field is building rosters we can think about our roster construction <clears throat> from the angle of how do I allocate my salary in a different way than the field is doing without getting into the, you know, is this play a good play or a bad player? Do I have to find some 1% owned play, right? Like differentiation is not just achieved by, um, by, uh, ownership of like one or two players on the roster it's also achieved by just the construction of the roster yeah tying the loose end or tying the last bow on that i would want exposure to the first game on a roster or two to be like only from this game from this first game jeff wilson and if isaiah mckenzie has ruled out uh cole beasley and the buffalo defense like that is something that is going to be extremely low owned that I want exposure to, to be able to get to that next decision checkpoint of prior to game two kickoff to be able to reassess from that point. Uh, that's all I got there. Um, let's talk about the final game on the slate, which is the Ravens and Bengals. And then we'll quickly bounce over to the Monday game. Yeah. Um, give me your elevator pitch of this I final game. Like, I just, <laughs> the Ravens have been so challenging where like last season when Tyler Huntley took over at quarterback for Lamar Jackson, he didn't light the world on fire. Generally, he had like one really strong game against Green Bay, um, but otherwise he performed reasonably and but he supported a, he, he supported strong performances from Mark Andrews. Um, he did that pretty consistently, and he hasn't really done that. Of he hasn't done that this year. The Ravens he hasn't supported any sort of strong pass catcher uh, performances this year, which is which just makes it hard to even like think about the Ravens. Um, and like it's not like they're going ignored, right? Like on a full slate, you could be like, well, at least I'm going to get paid off through like extremely low ownership if I'm right. Um, you know, Mark Andrews is projected at like 30% ownership. And look, he had a big game last week. He had, you know, nine nine catches on nine targets for 100 yards. Um, but like prior to that, his games with Huntley this year have been disasters, almost all below 10 DraftKings points. Um, Huntley himself has been pretty disastrous. Uh, you know, he has, he has played five games uh, since Lamar went out, he has two passing touchdowns and one rushing touchdown in five games. He has one game over 30 pass attempts. And like, you know, you could, 
if you want to play Tyler Huntley because he's going to be really low owned and you just think that like he, I mean, he showed upside in one game last year. He smashed the Packers. Um, I think he was like the highest or second highest scoring quarterback on the slate that week. Um, so he does have some upside, but you know, if you want to, but the challenge I have with him is not Huntley himself because he's a running quarterback. I mean, he's averaged like he's averaged almost 10 rush attempts per game since taking over for Lamar this season. He like, I'll always play rushing quarterbacks. The question is, can he support pass catcher performances? Cause since he took over at quarterback, like there has been one good pass catcher performance of the entire Ravens pass catching group. And that was actually, I'm sorry. I, I let me correct that. There were two. Um, it was Mark Andrews uh, in week 17 and it was Isaiah likely in week 18. Um, both of whom got to about 20 points, right? Which are their prices like Andrews would be four X, but on a slate where there aren't a lot of tight end options, if it's, if Andrews gets to 22 points, that's probably pretty solid, you know, likely at 20 points on a 3.3 salary, but that was without Andrews. So it's hard for me to want to play the Ravens. JK Dobbins is the kind of play that I just hate in DFS because he has succeeded through absolutely wild efficiency, right? Like he has two games of hundred rushing yards this season on 15 and 13 touches where he ran for eight and 9.6 yards per carry. Like that's hard to project for me. Like I can't do much with that. It's like someone who, who does this stuff, who, who, you know, builds this stuff based on projections and math. Like I can't, I can't project Dobbins for a game like that, you know, on 13 touches or 15 touches as a significant road underdog. So I'm kind of at a loss for who to play on the Ravens. I mean, clearly Mark Andrews is the one guy who is still, you know, because Andrews hit and then likely hit last week, you know, what we've seen and, and Andrews hit multiple times last year with Huntley. So what that tells me is that, you know, Huntley seems to support tight ends fairly effectively. He's not really supported wide receivers effectively. So I'm okay playing Andrews, but outside of that, I feel like I just don't know where else to go on this team. But it's also hard on a really small slate like this, it's hard to just write off a team, right? Because there just aren't that many. And, you know, do you really want to, like, risk sort of grouping yourself out of the nuts by being, like, by, by lopping a bunch of players out of your player pool? So that's my sort of existential crisis that I'm having around the Ravens. Um, so thanks for listening. Thanks for coming to my TED talk on that. But um, <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry, now like my, my voice is going hoarse a little bit. Um, but the Bengals, I think, are interesting, right? And I think this is the way the field's going to play it. So like, I guess the challenge I have is I don't know how to intelligently play this game very different from the field. And that's what's frustrating to me. Um, about this particular game like the other games I can see I can see and say like I think I'll play this game this way in this particular game I'm like I think the way the field is playing it is largely correct where it's pretty low on the Ravens except for Mark Andrews um, and it's you know pretty high on the Bengals passing game I think that the field is somewhat incorrectly high on the on, on Joe Mixon as the single highest owned Bengal I think that's kind of odd um in a tough matchup on a, you know, betting on a back who has one game of fantasy relevance this year. And, you know, so of course now he's going to go up and put up 50 points again, because that's what he does when we talk trash about him. Um, but I really like, I, I really want to be overweight the Bengals passing game, which actually is coming in pretty low owned. Like Jamar Chase is, you know, in the thirties 
which is pretty reasonable. T. Higgins is like around 20 right now, which seems very reasonable. Tyler Boyd is, you know, around 10-ish, which, and I think that his, you know, his floor is probably lower than the than the Giants wide receivers because he's the clear third in the pecking order um, behind, you know, Chase and Higgins, whereas, uh, you know, guys like Richie James and Isaiah Hodgins, like, there is no Jamar Chase on that team to suck up all the volume, right? Like, they're going to get it. Um, but I think his ceiling is pretty close. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I think Hayden Hurst is a great tight end play at 3,100. Like, Hayden Hurst has shown, um, you know, he's gotten plenty of opportunity with the Bengals uh, on the season. So, like, I'm totally comfortable with Hurst at tight end. I mean, he has... He has a couple of games of like, you know, he has multiple games of like eight, nine targets on the Bengals and he scored a few touchdowns for them. So I'm totally comfortable with Hurst. I guess the thing is, like, I don't know how to play this game differently in a way that I think is intelligent and different in the field, uh, but smartly different. Like the one thing I would say is I'm going to be lower on Joe Mixon and heavier on the pass game. But like, I don't feel like that's significant differentiation. I think that like when I look at ownership, uh, I feel like the field kind of largely has it right in this one. I don't know. Like, what do you think? I mean, I probably won't play as much Demarcus Robinson as I have ownership projected for, but that's just because I hate him. Uh, so I don't know. Like, what do you think? You're stupid and I what hate you. you. Uh, yeah. So I identified two primary ways to leverage the field's exposure to this game um, in the game write-ups. The first is Joe Burrow doubles with two pass catchers that are not exactly Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. So Joe Burrow plus Jamar Chase plus Hayden Hurst, or Joe Burrow plus Jamar Chase and Tyler Boyd. Um, Or, I mean, you want to talk about crazy, dude. Joe Burrow plus T. Higgins plus Hayden Hurst. Let's just go buck wild here. Um, But two pass catchers, and I heavily, heavily bias that to jamar chase plus somebody else not named t higgins just because we talked about in this space before how far jamar chase has distanced himself in his sophomore season from t higgins um jamar chase is seeing like almost a 30 percent red zone target rate he leads the nfl in red zone targets per game played because he missed those four games um the dude is just putting up numbers he's doing work you know look at his last four game logs it's like jesus dude See, 13, 12, 13, 15 targets. He has seen double-digit targets in all but three games played this season. That's insane. That is not, T. Higgins is not doing that. T. Higgins has put up double-digit targets in only two games this season. So it's just not... Like, last year, it was like almost interchangeable between Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. This year, although the ownership is reflecting that, like Jamar Chase is, is leagues above where mm. T. Higgins is. That said, oh god, now I'm getting hoarse. Uh, hold on, real quick. Okay, all right, we got it. Elevator music, thanks, bro. Um, that said, there is a very, very interesting leverage potential opportunity to play Joe Burrow doubles and bring it back with the Ravens defense. I think this week or on this slate. Because the Bengals have shown via their, how they've run their offense, their pass rate over expectation is absolutely cuckoo bonkers over the second half of the season. They are just going to sling it no matter what. 
They proved it last week in a game against this same uh, Ravens team that all they were trying to do was avoid a coin flip situation for uh, where they were going to play the game. Like that, that was all that game mattered. Ravens took that as we're going to rest our guys. The Bengals leaned into it and they played Joe Burrow and all the primary players the entirety of the game. They took it a little easier on Joe Mixon. That was it. So knowing that, and knowing that Joe Burrow still attempted, what, 42 pass attempts in that game, 52 the week prior, 39 the week prior against Tampa Bay, this is still a Ravens team that is facing passes at, the top, or at a top five rate. So their pass rate against mm-hmm. is in the top five in the league. All those things come together. We know that there's going to be pass attempts from the Bengals. We know that we like to target defenses against teams that are going to be passing a lot. That means more dropbacks. That means more opportunities for sacks. That means more opportunities for sack fumbles, return for a touchdown. That means more opportunities for interceptions. So all the things that lead to bulk scoring from a defense, all those things are going to be present for the Bengals this week. That said, like the Bengals are highly likely to not just completely fail, but think about what a defensive score, random defensive variant score from the Ravens' defense would do to the Bengals' pass numbers. They're probably going to have Joe Burrow end 45, 50, 52 pass attempts in a situation like that. So I think that's a very interesting leverage situation to go ahead and play your Bengals, play your pass game, play your Joe Burrow doubles, bring it back with Ravens' defense that nobody's going to be doing. If the Ravens score a defensive touchdown at 2.5, highly, highly likely, unless the Bills put up like a 20-plus fantasy point game, highly likely that they're going to be in the optimal conversation. Um, And gaining exposure to that situation, a viable outcome of that game, would only increase the aerial aggression for Joe Burrow. So I think that's an interesting way to approach that. I think it's interesting also to think about that exact situation playing the Ravens defense with like Jamar Chase and nobody else from that game environment. Uh, Maybe that's where you mix in some Josh Allen. Maybe that's where you mix in Daniel Jones. Want to talk about getting crazy? Let's go, dude. Uh, The upside that Daniel Jones brings to the table with his legs has been on full display multiple times this season. He rushed for multiple scores last week and week uh, or last time he played in week 17 against the Colts. Uh, put up 36 fantasy points that game. Um, he has another game where he went uh, 11 carries for 107 yards on the ground and a score against the Jaguars and put up 32 fantasy points. So um, talking about like Daniel Jones plus one of his pass catchers plus the Ravens defense plus Jamar Chase and then getting weird from there is another viable way to like generate some leverage on the slate. That's all I got there. Dude, that is – we're probably out of time to talk about the Monday slate. I just want to note really quick. Like, um, I mean, so, the Monday slate is like a show. There's one right – there's a write-up for that. And you can talk to me about it in Discord. Um, but I want to note, though, that, like, yeah, broadly speaking, your point about pl- about being willing to play offensive players against your defense is a really good one. I think that people generally shy away from that because, I mean, offensive players and the opposing defense are negatively correlated. So, yeah. But <clears throat> on a really small slate – you have to just think about how defensive scoring works, right? So, like, defensive scoring uh, can accumulate through, like, sacks and turnovers. And, look, if Joe Burrow gets sacked eight times and throws three picks, he's probably not ending up as the top-scoring quarterback because that's just killing all his drives. 
But what happens if Joe Burrow throws a pick six early on? Um, that's like, that kills one drive and it gets the other defense eight points. Um, but, you know, then he gets the ball back right away. Or what if, like, what if they return a kickoff for a touchdown or a blocked punt, right? Like, there's lots of ways for a defense to score in ways that don't necessarily kill drives and, and stop the other side from putting up good fantasy scores. And especially on a three-game slate, that strategy is very viable. And it's another point of differentiation, which we keep talking about, because you're going to need to find some way to differentiate from what everyone else is doing on this slate. And... You know, if you go pop into an optimizer and click run, and actually, sorry, before you click run, go into the settings. And one thing you will notice is that most optimizers come with a default setting that says number of players allowed against opposing defense. And by default, that setting is set to zero. So if you just, like, most people don't futz with stuff like that. And so if you're willing to go change that in a way that, you know, you're, you're essentially, you're trying to figure out how much, uh, you know, projection, how much median outcome you're willing to trade away in order to achieve differentiation. And like that to me is a smart place to do it, especially on a super small slate where it is entirely plausible that we don't get a lot of separation in defensive scoring. Like, you know, defensive, defensive scoring, it could very well be the case that all these defenses score between four and eight points, and it doesn't matter which defense you picked, essentially. That's possible. That's certainly possible. It's also entirely possible that only one defense gets into double-digit points, and that, you know, on a slate with fairly narrow uh, margins, because there's only three games, like, that you need that slate, to, you need that defense to win. And so if the Ravens' defense is the only defense that scores a defensive touchdown, odds are they're going to then be the optimal defense. But so the question is, can, they, can the Ravens' defense score a defensive touchdown and can we still have Bengals players put up good enough, you know, good enough scores to be in the optimal lineup? I think the answer to that is very clearly yes, right? Like, very clear to me that yes, the Bengals, the Ravens' defense and Jamar Chase, the Ravens' defense and Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and Hayden Hurst, like, you can get a defensive score and the Ravens offense can, or the, the Bengals offense can still hit. And if that plays out that way, you're competing against a much smaller group of, uh, of opponents, right? And like, that's, that's critical for us in, in figuring out how to, how to find ways to compete against fewer people on a three game slate. Like you need to make sure that you're not just sweating the, you know, the 1v1v1v1v1 of like the six different 1v, you know, 1v1 combinations of, um, of plays that's going to determine who won a tournament. You want to be in a position where, you know, you're, you're not, you're, your construction means that if it hits, you're the only one who has it, or you're one of a very small number of people who have it. And that is going to bring us to a close for the super wild card edition of the Slate Podcast. If you are new here, if you were listening for the first time, we do this every week for every main slate, talking about the game theory, the DFS theory behind the slate, not just what plays are good on paper. You get enough of that. Um, that is no longer an edge in today's DFS marketplace. With that said, you know the drill. I am Hilo. He is Zandemir. Find us every week, same time. Typically, we do these on Saturday before Sunday with the games starting on Saturday. We're doing this on Friday night, 6 p.m. Eastern. 
We go two hours every NFL week. With that said, OWS fan, pleasure as always. We will see you at the top of the leaderboards. Peace.